You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Blazin. I'm your host, Bobby Black, and today we're going to be talking about cannabis activism, cannabis advocacy, and this is obviously a big topic right now, uh, cannabis business as well. Uh, the cannabis industry is blowing up, of course, uh, all across America. My guest today is someone who is extremely qualified to discuss all of these topics. He is... Well, he's got more titles than a bibliography. It's pretty impressive. Uh, let's run through some of them. He's the youngest ever board member of National Normal. He's the executive director of New Jersey Normal. He is the director of East Coast Cannabis Division of Terratech Corporation. He is on the board of directors of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. He is also the director of the New York Cannabis Alliance, the owner of Nissen & Company, a cannabis public relations firm. And he's the CFO of Whoopi and Maya, which is Whoopi Goldberg's uh, new medical marijuana product company. Did I miss anything? I think that's all of them. <laughs> so please uh, join me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Evan Nissen. How are you, man? Pretty good. How about you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure, man. Uh, you know, I got to say, you just might be the most motivated, productive pot smoker I've ever known. <laughs> and you're only what, like 26, right? 26, yep. Wow, that is very There's impressive. Not, I've, I've seen some other motivated people. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But I got to ask the first right off the bat: How do you find time and energy to juggle all of those responsibilities and positions? Because it sounds daunting. Uh, it's a lot of organizing and time management, um, and you know, more lately um, with with Ms. McCoe and Wolfie and Maya, um, you know, 
proper delegation and just making sure everything is getting done. But I also find the more things I do, sort of the easier everything is, because the more resources and people and sort of knowledge at my disposal. I wanted to go back and start off at the beginning. Uh, at what age did you first become aware of and interested in, in cannabis? Um, I was uh, actually drug tested in junior high, uh, and I tested clean because it was before I smoked. And that was sort of the first time I was exposed, I think, to the drug war sort of affected me in a negative way, even though, you know, I did not even consume cannabis at the time. So I guess that's when I started becoming aware of it. And then I got involved in actual advocacy um, freshman year of college. Um, so I guess I was probably 18 or 19. Um, I was just looking at Wikipedia. And this was actually after I, I started smoking for the first time um, at college, uh, or right after I graduated high school, basically, was when I started smoking more regularly. Uh, and I was looking at Wikipedia, and I saw that some towns in New Jersey have what are called ballot initiatives. Um, the listeners on the West Coast will almost certainly know what, not, what they are, but people on the West Coast, East Coast may not, because um, they're uh, less common here. But it basically allows you to write uh, a law, get enough signatures, and put it on the ballot for the municipality, um, basically uh, allowing you to go around the lawmaking body, you know, whether it's the state legislature or um, the local city council. Sure. Uh, and so I did that in my hometown and then in New Brunswick to try to make adult personal marijuana offenses the lowest law enforcement priority. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Uh, East Brunswick, New Jersey. Pretty family oriented. Um, you know, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call conservative, but I definitely wouldn't call um, you know liberal or or a progressive leader of any kind. <laughs> and how did your parents feel uh, about your advocacy of cannabis when they first became aware of it? Um, you know, funny enough, uh, my mom, I remember my mom saying that uh, you know she, no one ever disapproved, but um, thinking that it would be more advantageous to do something that I would be able to put on a resume. You know, um, you know because back then, if you put cannabis you know, actors on a resume thought is that you smoke and you would never be able to get a job because there just was no marijuana industry to hire people <laughs> like us. Sure. Um, so, you know, ironically, that was the reaction that I remember best. Um, you know, but they weren't, I think they were a little concerned for myself, you know, like for me, I'm um, about potentially being targeted for law enforcement. Uh, but it, they, they were uh, middle <laughs> of the road, I'd say. So a lot of college kids, of course, first discover uh, marijuana, and they just get high and listen to music or play video games. What was it that drove you to turn your newfound appreciation for cannabis into a personal political mission? Do you think it was something that's just within your personality? Is it something about the way you were raised? What is it that made you want to go out and immediately start taking action? I think it's probably... My personality, you know, when I was younger, I remember having the ACLU student rights handbook in my book bag at all times and, you know, pulling it out. Um, you know, I think some of it stems from some anti-authority myth that is sort of in me. I think that probably um, is shared among a lot of advocates and people in the cannabis world, I'm sure. Definitely. You would probably say the same thing. That's really it. You know, I was always policy-driven. Um, I remember thinking... You know, when I was in high school, how cool it would be if I could help write even part of a law. Um, you know, it was just something that always sort of interested me. 
So you, your first, uh, your first political act on behalf of cannabis was the initiative that you just outlined, correct? Correct. Yes. So, so then describe to me a little the progression from there on, uh, like the progression of how you became involved in so many different organizations, like which came first and how did one lead to another? Sure, that's actually a good question. Um, so doing those ballot initiatives is actually how I met Rick, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Rick Husick, um, you know, former associate publisher of my times. And then I'll, I guess, you know, now come back later in the story. That's how I got involved in Normal, New Jersey, uh, and met Rick is, I reached out to Normal and uh, originally for legal help for that battle initiative. They sent me to Normal, New Jersey, which is how I got involved there. They wound up giving me the title Ballot Initiatives Coordinator. And while I was doing this, remember, I was still going to school in Ithaca, New York. Uh, so there was an article about the New Brunswick Ballot Initiative, the East Brunswick and New Brunswick Ballot Initiative that we were doing. Uh, and then someone from SFDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, saw that it said, the campaigns were happening in New Jersey, but I went to school in Ithaca, New York. Uh, and they reached out and they said, you should start an SSDP chapter at Ithaca because we see that you're doing this other thing in your hometown. Uh, and I said, for sure. I did that. Then I was working on the ballot initiatives in New Jersey. And this is like a throwback. I, I haven't even thought about this stuff in a long time. So <laughs> I was doing the ballot initiatives and then uh, Ithaca College SSDP getting that off the ground. Uh, and I went out to California for an SSDP conference, actually my first SSDP conference, um, which is when I uh, met the campaign director for Prop 19, the uh, legalization campaign that almost was the first state to legalize marijuana <laughs> uh, in California in 2010. Yeah. My new home state, by the way. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> go ahead. Go on. Uh, so I apologize. We I tried. We tried. We all tried. Uh, <laughs> oh, also, in this time... When I was up in New York, me and my friend Adam Scavone, um, who's now an attorney, started New York Cannabis Alliance um, for, for New York Medical Marijuana. Um, actually, we started as New York Patients first, but then we got a season to assist. So we named it New York Cannabis Alliance um, and started lobbying on the state level there because um, this was recently after New Jersey passed medical marijuana. Uh, so then uh, after meeting the campaign director for Prop 19 out at the SFPP conference, he invited me to work for them for the summer. So I went out there for the summer. Then they asked me to take the semester off and stay there for the duration of the campaign and run the college outreach effort and uh, half of the off-campus outreach effort for Get Out the Vote and mm -hmm. you know, sort of student awareness. So I did that. I took the semester off, helped run Prod 19. We narrowly lost. I went back to New York. My SSDP chapter helped pass the Nile Good Samaritan Law, which allows victims of overdoses and their you know, friends with them to call 911 during life-threatening medical emergencies and not get charged or arrested um, for drug possession. Right. Because of it. So that's how I guess I got involved with New York Canvas Alliance, normal SSDP. I then graduated college. Um, and, you know, if you asked me when I graduated, if I wanted to get involved in, the, in the industry, you know, I, I would have told you no. I did say no. Um, I got a bunch of job offers that I declined because it just wasn't really what I was interested in. Um, and then Teratech offered me um, a position basically to lobby for them, but, you know, with the arrangement that I'd lobby for what I thought was good policy and particularly what normal thought was good policy rather than, you know, something that would benefit just them. And then they would get into the industry, you know, once it was legalized. So I couldn't really turn that down because that's what I was doing for free for like, you know, five, 
or so years um, at that point. And so we took them on um, as, you know, a lobbyist, basically. Uh, and then I started sending them enough media that was, they were like, coming to me as an advocate, and I was saying to, to Terratech that they got me PR tools um, and said, you know, also focus on PR. And then that sort of naturally, organically turned into Nissenco, which is a Canada-specific PR firm. And then more recently, I guess the last organization on that list for me to explain my involvement in uh, is Whoopi and Maya, and that came about by Whoopi calling Wick and inviting him over, uh, I think, to do an interview, and, and she wanted to do more advocacy, um, so he's like, you got to talk to Evan. We went over there, and that's where she mentioned the idea of you know, Whoopi came, Whoopi and Maya. Wow, well, that's... Uh quite the lineage and uh yeah we'll talk a little more about uh whoopi and maya later in the show um but i want to stick to the uh activist aspect for the moment you recently uh had a chance to showcase your advocacy of cannabis in a very unique and high profile way i think it was april 21st right the day after 420 you stood up in front of an audience of millions on uh, good morning america and asked former secretary of state and uh, democratic presidential candidate hillary clinton a question regarding uh, legalization. I'm going to play that clip now. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm the uh, youngest member of the board of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and I'm also on the board of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I know that you've said in the past that you'd respect the will of the voters in states that chose to legalize marijuana, but I want to know if marijuana legalization was on the ballot in your state, if you'd vote yes or no. I think I would have to study that more to see how it was phrased, because it's been phrased differently in different states. But I will tell you what I will do as president. I've said I want to move uh, marijuana um, off of Schedule 1, which you understand means that you can't do any research about it, you can't do anything, and I think that's wrong. Uh, we have enough anecdotal evidence, as you well know, being a member of the normal board, about what uh, marijuana can do for medical conditions, easing pain. And we need to be doing research on it because I am 100 percent in favor of medical uh, uses for marijuana. But I want to know what the evidence is. I'm also someone who believes that the states can be those laboratories of democracy. So I'm watching carefully what's happening in the states that have legalized it to learn from them so we can base the best policy on that. What if it was a similar uh, industry to Colorado's right now, a similar situation to what Colorado I'm gonna, has? I want to wait and see what we learn from what's happening in Colorado and the other states that have gone the whole route toward absolute legalization. And I'm also watching the many other states that have done medical marijuana uh, referenda or laws. Because in the medical arena, if you're taking several different medications and you put marijuana on top of that, we need to know what's the interaction, what's the effects, what are the best uses. And so let's be really smart about this and acquire the evidence and then make the best decisions. So there it was. How did that remarkable opportunity come about? Actually, a friend of mine from the Young Democrats of America uh, said there was an opportunity for people to submit questions to ask a presidential candidate. I wasn't even sure if it was Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders a question. Um, I said I'd like to do it. I found out it was Hillary Clinton. You know, I called uh, Tom Angel actually from Marijuana Majority to help craft the question, uh, and then you know, I was picked as a high priority. You know, they said uh, uh, my question was a high priority. They couldn't guarantee if anyone would ever be able to get the question, but. Yeah, I was high on the list, um, <laughs> so I decided to wake up really, 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 really early uh, and do it. Were you scared, uh, nervous? 
Um, actually, I was nervous when, you know, on the call when I accepted it, you know, where they said, you know, do you want to do it? I was nervous, like, leading up to it, I guess, like, the day before thinking about it. Um, but as soon as I got there, I wasn't nervous at all. Wow. You're a better man than me. I would be, I'd be shaking in my boots. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like that for some reason. I, I get nervous thinking about things, but especially with TV for some reason, like, once it's on, I just hyper-focus and generally remain calm. How long did it take you to craft the wording of the question, and did they have to, I'm assuming, approve the, the wording of the question before you asked it? Um, well, Tom and I probably brainstormed for like five minutes the general idea of it, and then I submitted the general idea, uh, and then probably for the rest of the night and morning leading up to it, I, I sort of perfected it. At first, I, I wasn't going to add that. I was on the board of normal SFDP, and then I decided that it was probably a good thing to do that. You know, I sort of thought and tweaked until we came up with that. Was her uh, was her answer satisfactory to you? Is it what you kind of expected her to say, or did you think her reaction would be different? It was exactly what I was expecting, to the <laughs> point where um, we act- I actually had that second uh, response planned. <laughs> You know, I strategized a little with Tom, a little with other people, and we said, all right, if we were Hillary Clinton, what would we say? Um, and we all pretty much came to the conclusion of saying, you know, we would all say that it depended on the language of the initiative. So, you know, I sort of assumed that that's what she would say. She did. Uh, I was thinking about prodding her again, but, you know, I decided that chances are she's probably going to be the next president, and it just <laughs> isn't worth You don't want to badger yeah, her. <laughs> Yeah, and you actually got... Also, her response yeah. is horrible. You know, I mean, it's certainly not as good as Bernie Sanders, and, you know, it's not even necessarily better than the Republican candidates, you know, who were still in the running at the time, but it's still better than presidential yeah. candidates in, in previous elections. Yeah, it's po- it, it's the typical politician, least committal possible answer without possibly offending anyone who might be yeah. voting for me. Yeah. <laughs> so are you a Hillary supporter? Or are you a Bernie supporter? Are you on the fence, or are you not even wanting to say? I voted for Bernie Sanders, actually. I do plan on voting for Hillary if she is the one against Donald Trump in the general election. I'm going to vote basically for whoever is against Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm going to be involved in the campaign either way. I never don't get involved in some way, but I would probably be much more involved if it was Bernie. Cool. If Hillary does become president, what do you think her policy will be towards cannabis? Do you think it will be just a continuation of the Obama administration policies, which is has been a, a lot of lip, a lot more lip service than actual change? I would say, or do you think she will be a little bolder? I think two things actually, and, and they don't necessarily go together at first. Uh, the first I think is that it's going to be a continuation of Obama's policies, but I also think that she's likely to be the president that legalizes marijuana. I think. Um, she's sort of going to allow it to happen until the point where it does and then not fight it or, you know, maybe as it's getting closer, jump behind it like she did with a lot of <laughs> social issues. Do you I mean, think that, I don't see her being impediment. As, as someone who's done lobbying yourself, do you think that maybe she's too beholden to lobbyists from, let's say, Big Pharma or tobacco to put forward any significant rollbacks on prohibition? Or do you think that it's going to just be inevitable and she's just going to let it happen in that way, you're saying? This is me just completely guessing here, but uh, I think it's very likely she would look to sort of pharmaceuticalize medical marijuana. And I do think that's eventually where it's going to go. You know, anyway, I think what medical marijuana looks like now is going to be what recreational looks like in the future. Uh, but I think that she would sort of lead down that pharmaceutical path. Right on. Well, we need to take a quick break. 
but we'll be right back with more from cannabis activist and advocate Evan Nissen. Stay tuned. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. All right, and we are back here on Blazin. Our guest today is Evan Nissen, a cannabis advocate and activist. I'm not going to go through all your titles again because there's too many, <laughs> but he is the youngest ever board member of National Normal and owner of Nissen & Co. Cannabis uh, PR firm. Uh, what what businesses other than TerraTech, which we mentioned earlier, have you done PR for or advocacy for? Um, we have worked with most of the industry leaders, especially at PR firms. We worked with Masters recently on their announcement about the NASDAQ. We work with Vaporel, the largest vaporized distributor in North America. Uh, we worked to Atar, the largest private equity firm in the cannabis industry. Terratech, um, as you mentioned, they're the first publicly traded company to actually touch the cannabis plant. Uh, Leslie Box and Electrum Partners, a woman investment banker. Uh, Green Rush uh, Delivery out in California, um, the largest uh, delivery platform in California. Um, so most of the, the larger players, um, Medicine Man, the largest dispensary um, in Colorado. Yeah, so... Most of the larger players, for sure. And we'll be in my, of course. Yeah. Cool. Well, how, how big would you say the cannabis industry in America is right now in terms of, in terms of dollars, uh, in, in your estimation? I honestly don't know. I don't really believe any of the estimates that came about. You know, I think that it could become a $50 billion industry, uh, maybe 60 or $70 billion industry. But, you know, I think it's impossible to say what it is now, most because it's cash only business. There's, you know, some weird combination of medical and recreational, and in some states there's medical and recreational on top of each other. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a cluster right now, but yeah. I do think that we will get to the 50 or 60 or maybe $70 billion range. What state do you, do you think is going to be the next big green rush? Do you have any predictions? Uh, that is a good question. I think it's either going to be Nevada or Massachusetts. Is my two guesses. Uh, both have legalization ballots in November. You know, both are 
likely going to have fairly lenient laws if they get passed. And both, there's a strong interest from industry to pull capital into to, to set up the infrastructure. So that would be my guess. You know, I'm hoping it's on the East Coast. I think that would be a pretty amazing thing. Speaking of East Coast, back in 2014, uh, you were pretty instrumental in helping craft uh, and pass the New York State's medical marijuana law, the Compassionate Care Act. Is that right? Yeah, we spent a lot of time crafting the bill that we wanted to pass uh, that we thought was great policy. You know, we took a year, year and a half to craft it, talked to experts from uh, dozens of states throughout the country, and then Governor Cuomo came in last minute and sort of gave us the bill that he was willing to sign. <laughs> so, you know, there are some of what, what we wound up writing when I was involved in. A lot of, you know, chunks of it got, got included, but it, it isn't really the policy that I was hoping for. You know, that's politics. That's part of the sausage-making process. But, you know, I think Governor Cuomo was a little heavy-handed and a little uh, more strict than the average New Yorker would like him to be on it. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. Uh, the, that law has obviously received a great deal of criticism in, in the cannabis community for being one of the most restrictive in the nation. No flowers allowed, uh, restricting production to only like, what, five manufacturers, I think it was, or six. Extremely limiting on the conditions that qualify for medical marijuana, and et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think they were, Governor Cuomo and his administration were so uh, draconian about it? Do you think they were worried about it turning into another California? Isn't there like a middle ground that could have been a little better? We crafted them. Yeah, I mean, we crafted the middle ground. And what we crafted, by the way, had support of enough Republicans to pass the legislature. So, you know, Governor Cuomo says that he needed to do this to get the bill to the, the legislature. He's lying. Flat out. You know, I think that might be his stance. Um, in reality, you know, in my opinion, what happened is he didn't want medical marijuana to pass he saw that we were going to win uh, with or without him, and the bill was going to get put on his desk that would put him in a strange situation. Um, so he pretended to support medical marijuana and you know, put forward this quote-unquote responsible bill, um, which was his way of killing real medical marijuana. You know, that's, that's my opinion. <laughs> that's sort of bittersweet for me, right, because it's like, it's good that we forced his hand. You know, we forced him to do something, but he, you know, sort of like Governor Christie screwed us. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not even get into Christie. That's another whole show. <laughs> Do you have any uh, aspirations to possibly run for office yourself someday, you think? I don't think so. I mean, I definitely want to gain influence so I can influence policy and society and everything you know, in, in a positive way. But I don't know if actually running for office would be the most efficient way to do that. You know, I think if I know legislators, you can introduce legislation and vote on legislation. I don't know if it would be worth that extra energy and effort and time to actually be the one person, you know, the blind. But possibly, I don't know. It sounds like if you wanted to, you could, uh, you could probably do pretty well at it. Do you have any advice for uh, aspiring young activists out there? Obviously, Bernie Sanders has uh, really energized a lot of the youth in the country to become politically active and get involved in the political process. What can young people do if they're interested in helping with the legalization movement? My advice would probably be different than most people's because I have a unique perspective of sort of being on the industry, being involved in the industry and the movement, the nonprofit movement. And typically, it's sort of one or the other, but I think that true activism, well, no, I don't want to say true activism, but I think, you know, you can have incredibly effective um, and sort of systemic activism 
by using social entrepreneurism, you know, finding ways that you can create um, sustainable, profitable models that have socially driven purposes to them. Um, and the marijuana industry is just like the most fertile ground I've ever seen for that. You know, you have a social movement tied to one of the largest economic opportunities uh, in our lifetime, if not, you know, in recent history. So that's that would be my advice, you know, trying to figure out where you can sort of marry the two because it's going to be more sustainable. You know, I mean, you know, I'm on the board of some nonprofits and I'm on the boards of for-profits. Um, you know, and, and most of the time on the nonprofit board, we're talking about where do we get money? How do we get money to do this? There's all these awesome things we could do if we just had money. Meanwhile, there's an entire flourishing marijuana industry, you know, that sometimes and sometimes doesn't give to the, to the movement. But, you know, there's a way to sort of marry those two where there's, you know, socially driven purposes with an attached profitable model. Yeah. You're just going to get further. It's it's nice to hear that side of it because honestly, uh, a lot of people when they think of activism, and this is I think in my mind was the case for many years, even decades. Is when you think of activism, they think of rallies and marches and protests. And I've been involved in those things throughout my career, throughout my life, and I think they're important for raising awareness for for certain things. But I don't know that they really enact any change. I, I think that uh, they easily are dismissed by the media as people who are kooks or who are fanatics. And the, I don't think the politicians tend to pay very much attention to people with picket signs outside of conventions. I think that what you're saying, activism redefined as making the actual policy or making the money to fund the policy is, I think, a better, a more, well, at least more effective method of activism. Exactly. I'm not a fan of, you know, the game being, you know, our, our economy or our system of government right now. I think it'd be improved. But sometimes you just have to play the game to change the game. You know, and, and social entrepreneurism is a great way to do it and, and policy making and um, the like. Uh, you know, we needed and normal has been on the forefront of the marches and the rallies and that's something uh, that I think it was very important in the earlier days of the movement. And now, you know, is, is it's just more efficient, more effective and efficient, I guess, to, um, you know, do those sort of policy changes and, and public perception, maneuvering and sort of uh, social entrepreneurism. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, cannabis entrepreneurs, uh, I'm sure you've noticed, I'm sure our listeners may have noticed, there's been a proliferation of cannabis business conferences across the country in the past couple of years. Um, I imagine someone in your position has been invited to most, if not all of them, uh, either as a guest or a speaker or a panelist or of some kind. How would you say these, uh, these different events, at least the ones you've attended, differ from one another and differ from cannabis events of the past? <laughs> That's a good question. A lot of them don't really differ from each other, um, <laughs> other than the attendance, you know, who's going to be there. Uh, there's a few general categories of them, right? You have the investor ones, um, like ArcView, or the investor, you know, Cannabis Investor Summit, and um, you have, like, the, the NCAAs and, and the associations, and then you have the ones for, like, people just trying to get into the industry, um, you know, they're maybe not investors, they're not uh, current business owners, like, you know, NRJ Business Daily, um, those conferences. So those are sort of how I classify the three, but there's just a ridiculous amount of them. I will only go to the ones, really, that I know um, either a lot of my clients or a lot of my friends or advocates are going to be going to. And sometimes they clump them together, you know, like out in California later this uh, next week I'm going out there, there's going to be RQ and CIA, 
if it'd be good having strategies on it. You know, they sort of clump things together. Yeah. Finally, saving the best for last. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, our mutual friend, Rick Cusick, he was sort of a mentor to me at High Times, uh, one of my best friends at the company uh, for the years that, that he and I worked there together. He got you involved with the Whoopi and Maya company. And this is a story that has been, you know, all over the media, not just the cannabis world, but obviously the mainstream media, the entertainment news. Uh, it's exciting to see a celebrity of her stature getting involved in the cannabis game. And I hope that there are more celebrities that get involved. But I, I just got to ask, like, what's it like, man? What's it like hanging out with Whoopi and working with her? And what has the whole experience been like? Tell us a little about the launch of the company. She is putting her celebrity status aside. You know, one of my favorite people. For um, She has an incredible intuition and sense of people. You know, I don't think she knows how to be anything but honest. Even if she wanted to be, she's trusting. I mean, she is, uh, you know, she, and, and she really like, she, this is for her, you know, really about getting the product to as many women as possible. You know, she's done incredibly generous things like give equity away for the good of the company and, uh, to get talent on board. And she's really just wants to get this product in as many women's hands as possible. And I mean, I, from a, you know, me as a PR guy, like it's just the perfect thing to be involved in. I was incredibly excited about just what it does to the movement and industry from an image standpoint. You know, you have one of the most successful female African Americans uh, in modern time who hosts a women's talk show, you know, owned by ABC, deciding that, you know, she wants to create medical marijuana products for menstrual cramps, right? So then we get the opportunity to work with the female movement and the women's rights movement and the feminist movement with products that will, would never look like cannabis products. You know, I mean, you put those, these products on TV or, you know, in magazines, and women just see them like any other cosmetic or bath-type product that they use. I think it was awesome. I think it was a genius idea on her part. I'm very grateful and feel very lucky to be involved with it. Well, uh, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here, but uh, naturally, I would love, love to get Whoopi as a guest on my show. <laughs> so what do you think? Do I have yeah. a shot? Can you put in a good word for me? It's possible. I'll put in a good word for sure. All right, man. I appreciate I'll you I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, and, uh, and I, won't, I won't be mad if it doesn't pan out. But uh, all right, Evan, yeah. well, thank you very much for setting aside time in your incredibly busy schedule to speak with us today yeah. and for all the amazing work you're doing on behalf of the plant that we love and all the people who love it. We owe you a great debt. Keep it up, man. Thank you. You too. All right. Take care. All right, my friends, and that is our show for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in and toking up with us here on Blazin. Be sure to check out our Facebook page where we'll have links to all of the great organizations that Evan is a part of. That's facebook.com slash blazinwithbb. You can also follow me on social media if you are so inclined. On Twitter at Bobby Black, on Facebook and Instagram, Bobby Black 420 I hope that you'll join us again next week and every week here on Blazin. Until then, this is Bobby Black saying, Blaze on, brothers and sisters. 